Hello and welcome to the Gaming Moguls podcast, the only podcast that comes to you in a small box that's shaped like an abstract jaggedy orange shape. I'm your host tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Jake Klopfenstein. Jake, how you doing this evening? Wonderful, my man. Thanks for asking. Did you get my reference about the jaggedy orange shape? Yeah, I, I didn't get it the first time, but thankfully you had to take the, the intro twice and gave me a little bit more time to process it. It's the Board Game Geek logo. That's what you're referencing. <laughs> I am, man. It's all abstract these days. And thanks, by the way, for giving our listeners a peek behind the curtain. <laughs> Whatever. It's fine. You keep my, my goofs in. I figure every once in a while I got to show them what's really going on behind the curtain. <laughs> um, final thing I'll say in the Board Game Geek thing. I don't know why they didn't just give the guy glasses, because then it completely resolves the fact that it's a human's face. And it's totally fine. But oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that I'm would do it. graphic design. I'm not a smart man. I don't know. Maybe they, or they could have just done what I suggested and do a big BGG. Oh, yeah, well. there's there's different designs that could be made, but you know, having been somebody that's been through a graphic design process for a logo, boy, that's a hard process. Oh yes, I do not. I, I do not envy their pain. So, anywho, let's start our episode. First, we got some news. Why don't you hit it off, Mark? Yeah, so the biggest news here. We actually talked about it last week, but you know, it bears repeating the fact that. We have specific dates and a specific location, and our registration is up for MogulCon 2019. MogulCon 2019 is going to be September 27th through the 29th, 2019 in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We're actually hosting it in Rosemount, Minnesota, which is about 15 miles southeast of the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport. And it should be an awesome weekend of gaming. Jake, what are you excited about? I'm excited to play games with all of these fun people and hopefully meeting some new people that we haven't gamed with before. Um, Really is important, as Mark said, to kind of register for it. The more people we know that are coming, the better plans we can make ahead of time and make it the best event that we can. So please check out our link. You'll find it on our website or tweet about it all the time and all that stuff. So just please register. It's going to be so fun. And that's at gamingmoguls.com slash mogul dash con dash 2019. Or you can just click up on the thing in the menu up at the top. And to further reinforce this message, Jake, what have we got for our listeners? We have a signed copy of Tricks and the Phantom, one of the new Oink released games from Gen Con that we will be giving away if you retweet our tweet for the announcement that MogulCon is live. Um, You can do that. We'll add your name to the giveaway and we will DM you for a copy of the game. And furthermore, we actually want you to tweet out the link to registration. Doesn't matter if you're coming or not. Just please tweet out the registration link. I personally had Mr. Jun Sasaki, the owner and chief designer at Oink Games, sign this copy. So, uh, you know, very rare, unique keepsake there for uh, somebody that helps us out. Absolutely. Why don't we start off with what we played this week, Mark? We had another wonderful week of gaming. Why don't you start us off? You bet. Well, hey, I'm looking at this giant pile of Gen Con things, new games and cool stuff that I'm really excited about playing. And what did I pull out first? A game? No, I pulled out upgraded bits. And those bits I pulled out were upgraded geek bit tiles for La Havre. You know, I went back and forth on these dumb tiles because they really are the exact same thing as the cardboard chits that are inside the base game of Lahav. These are actually way better. <laughs> as soon as I saw them in person, yeah. I went, oh, I got to get these. These are way better. They're just the, there's a tactile thickness to them that. Ah, lovely. Anyway, with the game we're talking about, Lahav is by Uwe Rosenberg, published locally by Lookout Games. 
Uva's got a lot of great games, and this might be one of his greatest. And I was just recently reminded about how great of a game it is when we pulled it out and played it. It was interesting seeing you guys play. You guys were had a think like a two hour, two and a half hour thing. And um, you asked me, can I fit this in? And I said, absolutely, you guys can fit it in. Did you guys fit it in in the amount of time? I regrettably wasn't at the table. Not even close. We probably got through Uh, three quarters of it. And what's funny about it is Lahav is actually a very easy game to teach. The movement on it is simple as can be. There's a little bit, there's a seven point rondelle there where you move your boat forward, you stock up whatever's underneath that, and then you either take the action of one of the buildings out there or you grab some resources. I just taught you how to play Lahav. Done. And then you can add in the buildings as they come out, right? So you can buy this building on your turn and then I'll explain what that does. And then once they uncover the next building, you do it. Maybe that's not the best way to have them fully form a strategy. But as a first time learning game, I mean, you can't really beat that. Yeah. And I think they learned it really quickly. But one of the reasons that Lahav is such a great game is it has a very rich, dense strategy. And I also like to call it Misery Harbor taking after it's much like agricola in that it's really tight like resources are super tight you never quite have enough to do exactly what you want and so therefore you do get stuck analyzing what's my best move and trying to figure out how to get yourself out of the hole you're in absolutely yeah i was sad i didn't get to play this with you but i'm happy that you played it again and i'm hoping that we're going to play it sometime this week right That game is really high on my list of games that I want to play on Wednesday night because I didn't get to finish it. And because I was re-reminded about how this is one of my absolute favorite games of all, that I'm going to push playing that much more often because, wow, such a tight, nice game. Yeah, now that you actually have the upgraded bits for Love, I don't know why we wouldn't play it more often. It's awesome. Well, and the other big criticism of it is it can be a real table hog if you try to take out all the resources and spread them out. I've just got a little Plano fishing tackle thing that I keep them in. So I just literally flip up the lid and go, okay, let's play. There it is. Easy, easy setup. Super simple. Now, the one downside I will say is that it is a long game. We proved that last Wednesday. I'm curious to see how the short game plays out. I've never tried it just because in concept, I'm not really, I don't like short games or intro games or beginner games or whatever. I usually figure I'll just cut to like the full experience, but maybe this is a case that short Lahav better than no Lahav. What do you think? Yeah, I think short Lahav is better than no Lahav, to be candid. Well, if any of our listeners have experience playing the shortened version of Lahav instead of the full blast long version, drop us a note and let us know how it plays out. Uh, We should really just try it, but curious to hear if it's worth our trouble or not. Yeah, well, it seems like we kind of sometimes end up playing games the way that isn't the best. And it's always good to hear from outside people that end up playing it a different way than us. So it'll be fun for sure. So that's awesome. Lahav is a great game. I also got to play some games this week. Mark was so kind enough to bring me back a whole bunch of games from uh, Gen Con, which was the nicest thing I could ever ask for. Thank you again. But this ended up resulting in my shelf of shame getting out of hand. And so I was sitting down with the wife and I was like, we need to play a game just to get this off. And so I pulled out a game that I think would play it two players well, and we played it and we had a pretty good time. The game I'm speaking of is Ghosts of the Moor is a recent printing by TMG Games, Tasty Minstrel Games. That is a publisher that I very much like. But before I describe the game, I do have to give a small little funny story about my wife here. So we were playing Ghost of the Moor, and it comes with small little maybe inch and a half, maybe inch square tokens. And at the same time, she was eating dry cinnamon toast crunch, just as like a little snack before we had dinner. We were playing right when I was done with work. And 
right before we started cooking dinner. So she was uh, munching on that. And then all of a sudden <laughs> I look over at her and she spits out something saying, what the heck? And turns out that she had gotten her hands confused and put the game piece in her mouth and still had the cinnamon toast crunch in her hand. So we have <laughs> banned her from eating at the same time. I did disinfect the game. Um, so hopefully that piece is not too recognizable, but I think I might need to shoot an email to TMG games. So let's give a quick background on what ghost in of the more is and kind of what it does. So to start off with, it's designed by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer. And what's interesting is it's actually a roll and move game, but it does it really well. So there's a long track. And in the first third of the track, there's two different treasure tiles. The second part, there's one treasure tile. And at the end, there's no treasure tiles. And what you're doing is you're leading your team of people through this swamp or whatever the heck it is thematically to try to get to the end to get the most points and collect sets. So first thing you do on your turn is you roll 1d6 and however many pips that has indicates how many spaces you need to move. You can choose any person though. If you leave a spot and you are the only adventurer there and there is a tile there, you grab that tile and add it to you. Some tiles are a bunch of different sets. Some give you a small special power, which are uh, little uh, planks of wood, so you're no longer trudging through the river. Or there are negative points, which are ghosts. Or if there's another person at that place to which you leave, um, you do not grab the tile. If you leave a place with no tiles on it, regardless of the number of people, you must then discard one of your treasure artifacts that you have. So depending on what space you leave, that'll have a little symbol on it, and that'll determine what tile you need to get rid of. So it has to be either that tile if you have it. If you don't have it, you can discard a ghost, or you can discard two different tiles. And then you have to put those towards the end. So it's kind of actually fun. It was fun. It got way more thinky than we thought it'd be. It's kind of one of those games where you're putting yourself in a position to handle a bunch of different odds, and you're not going to try to roll for the just get a specific number. But I thought it was really fun. Have you heard anything about this one, Mark? Uh, no, this sounds really cool, though, Jake. Would you describe this as sort of a family weight game? Absolutely. It's pretty light. Might as well just do the mogul scale right here, which is a two number or a two factor weight determination where it's one through five for the first number, which indicates real weight. And then A through E that indicates like strategy complexity. And I would give this one a one B, maybe a one A. It's that simple. But what's interesting about it is it, it has a little bit of gameplay to it for what it is. So, and the other thing I'm dying to know is, is this game predominantly brown? Like, is there a reason she got this confused with Cinnamon Toast Crunch? God, no, it's all green. I have no idea. I think it's just a hands-free <laughs> moment. I do have one complaint, though, aside from Anna eating my game piece. The box is, I think this is the first time I've ever seen this, and listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but I own a lot of language-independent games, and usually the box is different on those but what this one does is both the front and the back of the box have the same art. The only difference is the front and the back of the box have different languages. So in the front, it says Ghosts of the Moor. And then in the back, it says Geists something. And it's the weirdest <laughs> looking thing ever because if you were a German speaker, clearly you're the, you're the backside of the box, you know? So I don't even think they'd be happy with it. And then you can't like, I keep on wanting to flip it over and like see a picture of the game and how it's set up and all that stuff. And you can't really see it. It's, it's a weird publishing thing that I don't think I've ever seen before. It looks really cool. I'm looking at the pictures of it right now. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite green. I'd almost say like, you know, a glow in the dark ghostly green. Oh, it's spooky. It's very cute. It has a very <laughs> cute theme. I, I, I waxed over that, but it's, it's, it's adorable. I saw this game getting delivered to you 
and saw the backside of it being delivered and saw it in German. Now that explains everything. I was like, what's that over there? Yeah, it's strange. I don't know if this is common and maybe it's something that's from the history in gamings that we just kind of don't see now because we've been in the hobby for not as long as a lot of other people. It'll be interesting to see if this is common or not. I don't know. Listeners, let me know. Hmm. Yeah, that's Ghost of the Moor. It's a fun little game. I'm thinking we're going to play it more. We'll see what we think of it kind of down the line. And what was the playtime on this one? For two of us, we ended up getting pizza in between. So that added a little bit of time. I'd say probably 30 minutes. Not long at all. Cool. And two player only or two to two and two plus? Two to five, I believe. And so functionally what happens is you scale down the number of adventures you have. Okay. Well, love to try it. We certainly have time to get in filler games. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. That's Ghost of the Moor by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer, published by Tasty Minstrel Games. Weirdly, Jake and I both played a Gen Con acquisition. Mine was a Gen Con acquisition. His wasn't. And we didn't compare notes. We independently played it and both bragged about how we played it and found out we both played it. So we've got a lot to say about this one. On the same day, nonetheless. On the same day. This is so weird. The game we're talking about is a small box card game from Japan published by Sashi and Sashi called In Front of the Elevators. And this is a game that I've seen coming available for a long time and had my eye on, have seen some reviews and it really piqued my interest. So when I was able to secure a copy of Gen Con, maybe fortunately it worked out, I was all over that one and I didn't even know you picked one up. Yeah, I really like small box Japanese games, just like you. And I saw it go online for BGG when I was hanging out. And so I was like, yeah, I'll buy that. That's fine. It was a total impulse purchase, but I like Blend Coffee Lab and I just kind of like weirder games. So this one was definitely added to the list. Hey, hipsters of a feather game together, eh? There it is. There it is. We got our (laughs) fixies together, bud. Right on. So the notion of the game is that you've got three elevators. Each elevator scores a certain amount of points based on who's online before that. So like, In one elevator, the first three people will score, the next four people will score, and the next four people will score. Also, each elevator has a person that scores double if they manage to get on there. So like the top floor goes to the men's department plainly because dad and grandpa scored double. The next one goes to the ladies department because mom and grandma scored double. And the bottom one must go to kids or something like that or toys because the boy and the girl score double. And every card has a thing where you can have them butt in in front of somebody else. So like, Uh, there's like this big mama's boy thing where every, uh, you know, the dads can cut in front of grandma and the boys can cut in front of mom. Grandmas can cut in front of grandpas. Wives can cut in front of husbands and grandpas cut in front of the girls. Yep. (laughs) So everybody's got somebody they can cut in front of. There's also the lost girl who kind of sits, stands there forlornly clutching her little doll. And when you put her in line, she goes to the back and she drags somebody of the same color to the back of the line with her, the frontmost person of that color to the back with her. And the idea is that once you've exhausted all the cards, then you just score up the positions in there. Super hard to predict that one and super hard to place it because you might have everything all placed correctly, but then somebody puts the lost girl and drags your people to the back. Or what's even better is the cafe rule. You'll have like your grandpa in the perfect scoring condition in the men's floor elevator. And then somebody puts the third grandpa in that row and nukes all three of them, (laughs) leaving you with nothing. Right. Well, we thought this game was just hilarious. So we played it with uh, on Sunday morning with a couple of my friends and one of my cousins came over and we had such a funny time explaining the theory behind that. So 
These people are waiting to get in an elevator. And I love the idea that just when three other people that are the same age as them show up, they say, ah, screw this. I don't have to do whatever I was going to (laughs) do. Let's go have lunch. Let's go get coffee. This line's getting out of hand, you know? It was amazing how long some of those lines got sometimes before they before they cleared out. Like, I mean, there was occasions where we had, I don't know, seven or eight people and, you know, nine people in line before we got the third of anything. Right. And then all of a sudden it'll just everybody's going to lunch. They can't be bothered anymore. You know, there's three women there (laughs) at the same age. We have to do lunch. We also realized how monumentally important those double bonuses are. My son actually managed to get two grandpas in the double score line in the third round and just went shooting way ahead of everybody. So I guess I have a question. What do you mean by two grandpas? The reason why I'm asking is you can't have two grandpas to score. Do you mean like a man, a man and a grandpa? No, you can have two of the same coming. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, he right, right. He had he actually had two from two. He he must have had okay. like a yeah, right, right. Because you only have one of each color, one of each role. So. Right. And, and and I guess I'm being pedantic to ask, but the reason why I'm asking this is we weren't super sure on how you reset up in between each rounds. And so what I would do is I'd fully and maybe this is too detailed for the podcast, but I'll go really quick here. All you do is you take all the cards and restyle, um, stack them back up and then you give two to each person of their matching suit and then you shuffle them back up and make the three different draw piles. Yeah, that's that's exactly okay. how you reset. You just that, scoop, that's you how scoop. we did it, too. And just the difference we did is we fanned out the cards and everybody picked two of their color on the table. And that makes sense, too. Yeah. So I think something that we have to mention, too, is something that's really neat in this game is it's not like other games where you have just your own cards and you have to choose when to play them. You have a limited hand of two cards. And after you play a card, you draw a card from one of the three different piles that doesn't have to correspond with your elevator. And what's interesting about that is it really opens up the timing to draw. So at the beginning, you'll start with two different cards of your own suit. But then maybe people are going to start drawing from other people's, depending on what's available, other people's scoring hands. So you can use certain cards from other people in different ways. So it really opens up as the gameplay evolves. It's not as simple as just, okay, well, I have my hand of eight family members. What am I going to do here? Right, right. Yeah. And I always really I had a hard time figuring out like when's the right time to grab grab a card of your color versus a card of somebody else's color, because you could actually take a card of somebody else's color and put it like in the wrong line for them at the back of the line. (laughs) If if like the right person wasn't there to cut in front of because you have to cut if you can. Right. So you could basically just stuff that person out for them. And like I drew my own lost child at one point and I had people in scoring positions, which is the worst thing in the world. Actually, no, I actually I thought about that. Yeah, I thought about that because the two I had two of the three in scoring position and they were the right double bonus ones. So if somebody else had gotten that, they could have pulled my person completely out of scoring position, whereas I could just put that at the end of the line in the third row where I had no cards of my color and it didn't do anything. It just sat there at the end. So it was perfect. Right. I guess it's one of those things where you're controlling something bad happening to you versus something bad happening because all the cards will be played besides four which is one per each person's hand and they're not going to not use that card right oh for sure yeah if you have the opportunity to pull somebody out of scoring position you're gonna do that what's interesting about this is i kind of thought about it after and this is just an area control game right pretty much yeah with true non rolling to resolve sort of actions which is interesting so i played this one and i kind of thought you wouldn't like it because there's a lot that changes in the board state and people might gang up against you and i know that's something you don't like in war games so it's interesting to hear or pardon me area control style games and it's interesting to hear you like this one so much 
Well, you know, I think it's one because the amount of change isn't as violent. I hate the one where, like, you know, you lay all these great plans and by the time it comes back around to you, like the board doesn't even look like you're playing the same game. Oh, see, I would agree that this game has that in spades. Uh, I think that the board completely changed. So this is one of those games where I don't think you even need to watch what's being played because by the time it gets back to you, it's going to be so different. You have no idea what's going to happen. And maybe it's just that it's light enough and it's a quick enough game that if, you know, eh, okay, I got I got ganked this round, but five minutes later, I'm off again. Maybe that's why. Right. And it's three small rounds anyways. So maybe you suck at one round and you can do well in the other two. Literally, our review takes longer than the game. Oh, absolutely. We could have played this twice. It was so fast. (laughs) So anyway, probably uh, I I think we beat that one into the ground, but really delightful little game. I know it's currently available in the U.S. from Meeple Source. I'm not going to promise you that it's going to be terribly budget conscious, but it's a delightful little game. And um, I think we're going to rate that on the mogul scale a 2B. A little bit of complexity to the rules and thinkier than you'd think it would be. Yeah, I think if it was more like pictographic and had even less of a theme, it could even be a one. It's a pretty light 2B. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I think, you know, pretty light 2. I think the B's on target, though. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. The 2 is the thing that I think is a little light. Well, it's awesome. I'm happy we both got to play it. Very fun. I think we'd be yep. playing that one a lot more moving forward. Yeah, that one's delightful. That's In Front of the Elevators by Sashi and Sashi. So I also was able to play another light, small box Japanese game. Went to a brewery with some cousins and my sister and her fiance and all that stuff. And so as I am one to do, I brought a small bag of games, um, shoved them in my wife's purse and she brought them with. And so we played Deep Sea Adventure at a brewery. Had a great time with it. I did that thing where I think me and you and especially people in this hobby get really used to playing games with gamers or at least like really gamer people or at least people that are adjacent to gaming. Even if you're playing with somebody that's not as much of a gamer, they've probably played some games in the past. For sure. Yeah. I played this game with people that were I don't even think they'd use gamer to describe themselves at all. Like cell phone games are probably beyond them. Hmm. And they got mad at me for not explaining the deep sea adventure rules that well when there is not many to them. And you've been there while I've explained. I'd explain deep sea adventure well, but I think I only explain it well for gamers. There's so many more considerations for people that don't know games. You know, you have to mention, okay, well, you're going to roll these dice in your turn. Here's what's on the dice, you know, and like, what does that mean? You have to really hit the structure and all that stuff more than other things. And it got funny because I ended up when I ended up not winning the game, but both my sister who thought that she was out of the game and was all mad at me for not teaching her well enough um, ended up winning. So thought that was an interesting thing when you do see really <laughs> the other side of the world where they are very, very not into games. Yeah. And that has a couple of funny things about it. And I mean, one being that the dice are not one through, you know, they're six sided dice, but they're not one through six. They're, you know, they're, they're, I don't know, weighted three, like, they're you know, D3s. Yeah. I thought there was actually something funny, like it was two, three, three, four, four, five or something like that. But maybe you're right. It's two ones, two twos, two threes on every single D6. OK, I couldn't remember exactly how they were weighted. But anyway, yeah, that's a funny thing. And if you're expecting to roll a four and get back also the bit about, you know, dropping cargo on your way back or, you know, how you can hop over people. You know, I can see if you weren't a gamer where that one wouldn't be immediately obvious. Yeah, so uh, I do have one other note on it. I should have posted this on Instagram. Mark 3D printed me the best insert for this. So I owe a huge thank you for that. It made <laughs> set up and tear down a breeze. It looked beautiful. Craig Taylor's been harassing us for a long time about doing that. And uh, see, Craig, we're up to speed now. 
We did it. Mark used his 3D printer. So anyway, that was Deep Sea Adventure by Jun Sasaki and Goro Sasaki and published by Oink Games. So why don't we stay on that Oink game train here for just a moment longer and talk a little bit more about a game that I mentioned last time, Nine Tiles Panic, because we have played the living tar out of that game since we talked last. Yes, we certainly have. Oh, man, we've played that a lot. I think I've gotten three games in since. Boy, I've got at least that many. My family has gone bananas over that game. I bet I played it half a dozen times. Oh, it's wonderful. So why don't we describe what you're doing in this game? Even though I think we described it last episode, I think it's it's worth mentioning so we can deep dive into it. Okay, quick nutshell. Nine tiles, just like it sounds, you got to make a city. There are roads on the tiles. They all have to go on and off the board. And there's a bunch of other symbols like aliens and dogs and kids and agents and stuff like that. And then every time you get three challenges, the challenges might be like most dogs or most consecutive, most uh, adjacent tiles with houses on them. And one might be like the longest road. You play until somebody's done. You flip a sand timer, then everybody else has to finish. And then you score it. Whoever does it best gets the player number of points and you work your way on down. You play to a certain point. Whoever has the most gets the victory. How was that? That did. You did great. That was wonderful. And concise it would have even be a better explanation if you saw the nine tiles in front of you. They're just like little double sided tiles with little curvy roads on them. That's it. And that's the fun part is that the fronts and the backs aren't what you think are going to be on there. So as the sand timer is running down and you're scrambling to get your city done, you're frantically flipping and you just don't have the right thing on the backside. So now you're shuffling tiles and flipping them. And now your city's a mess. And now your plan to score well is a mess. Right. And you've and, completely forgotten about the fact that you were setting this up in a certain way for that. Oh, and getting no points for all three judging rounds because your city wasn't complete is a severe penalty. Oh, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. So this was my first time playing. You you said how much you've loved it, but I think it was pretty self-explanatory that I'd love this game. And oh my God, do I. The one worry I have about this game is I think you could memorize the tiles. Yeah, yeah, maybe you could you if you knew a certain thing was on the back of certain others, but you've you've got a timer putting pressure on you and it's a, a really surprising variety of stuff. So just because you know that something's on the back of someone, you still have the time pressure of trying to balance the fact that the two challenges that came up is longest road and most number of roads. And I think the reason I bring this up is that'd be something I was accused of in the original nine tiles which has um, six different symbols on all 18 respective sides of the nine tiles. But you can't memorize what's on the back of everything because you don't know what blue star is present there. Oh, right? I see what you're saying. But yeah, yeah. on yep. the back side of there's two that don't have roads or two or three that don't have roads. There's three. Mm-hmm. And if you were to know what's on the back side of each one of those three, that's a pretty good advantage compared to other people. Yeah, if you knew that like the backside of the, you know, the double corner hook, the, the one with the dog on it has the one with the captured alien and the one with the right just that agent little stuff. on it has the UFO, which maybe it won't save that much time. But just knowing because because that was the big complaint that everybody had about the original nine tiles before this version is that we all knew it. and Nobody else did. I don't think that it'll matter that much in the end scheme of things. It'll be kind of interesting to see down the line if that really helps. Well, the other thing is, yes, there is a time, but it's not that tight. If somebody finishes it, it's not like you're scrambling. It seems like there's at least 90 seconds or something in my sand timer. So here's where that becomes important, though, is that when you finish, you grab a you grab one of the five markered tiles and that's the tiebreaker. Oh, yeah, that's huge. 
we found a lot of times where somebody like, hey, how many dogs do you have in Jason Tiles? Well, I got four. Well, I got four. Well, I got four. Well, I have the number one tile, so I'll take the five points. Thank you very much. And then even though everybody else scored the exact same as you, they're scoring three and two respectively or whatever, depending on the number of things. N minus one and N minus two. So even though you have 90 seconds on the sand timer, it's in your best interest to get done faster. True. So I'm still such a big fan of this game, though. I had an absolute hoot playing it. It's such a fun iteration on nine tiles. And I just it's just so cute. I love it so much. I'm so thankful you bought this game for me. Agreed. And I believe that this one is going to be commonly available in the U.S. via Amazon and whatever else. There's a handful of Oink games that come to the U.S. every year and are commonly available. And I'm pretty sure that's one of them. So that's Nine Tiles Panic. Check it out and be sure and pick yourself up a copy. This a 1A, Jake, on the mogul scale? Mm, Yeah, I think so. I think it's a 1A. It's just a really quick, light little game. Um, if we're not going to, we got to start giving out ones more often. And this, if this isn't a one, what is right? Nope. I agree. And it's, it's not really strategic. It's more, it's almost a dex game, right? Where it's just like, you got to go fast. You know, there is some thinking going on there and you might be able to figure it out, but oh, this is so fun. I love watching my friends like brains just melt at this game. It's awesome. Cool. That's nine tiles panic by Jens Merkel and Jan, John Claude Pellin and oink games. Absolutely. So now I'll keep up the Japanese theme here. We also on Wednesdays were able to play Yokohama by Hisashi Hayashi and TMG Games, at least published in the United States. In Yokohama, which is conveniently one of Mark and my favorite games, Mm -hmm. you're a bunch of different Japanese businessmen who are right in the time where Japan no longer was an isolated country and started opening up to the Western countries for trade. And so what you're doing is you are studying Western technology to get special bonuses and you're trading with them and getting all these import goods and yada, 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 yada. That's the themes of it. Functionally, what you're doing is you're moving your little president amongst kind of bowling pin shape setup of action spaces. And on your turn, you put down some assistance, then you have to move along a row of assistance to any action, however far away, as long as you can go to an assistant on the way. Once you get there, you do the action depending on how many things of your color, whether they be buildings you've built or whether they be assistants that are there, plus your president, you do the action strength for that ability. It ends up working to be a really fun, pretty open tile action selection-y, game-y thing. Um, There's a lot of definitions there, but we played it as a three player thing. And oh, my God, I love it so much, Mark. This is I'm so happy that we made the idea to play the games we love more because I don't think we I think this game would have just been continued to be like a garage queen, if you will. Oh, I know. And uh, you played with two people who had never played before, right? I know Brent had never played. Brent definitely had not played. But Kirk had played once or twice before. I had a pretty bad experience teaching this to somebody when I thought this was a way simpler game than it actually ended up being. And he didn't have a good time. So the game dragged on a little bit and it just kind of wasn't his sort of game. But we played it with Kirk, Brent and I, and I think they both just really liked it. I remember Kirk saying, yeah, this is definitely one we should play more. Like we were crazy and had (laughs) just had the exact (laughs) wrong idea about games. And so it was awesome. I'm so happy we played it. Yeah. And I just got another upgrade kit for mine to make the little houses and workers and stuff nicer. So I actually have some leftover sort of deluxified wood components. So uh, hit me up at marketgamingmoguls.com if you want to uh, bling up your uh, copy of Yokohama a little bit. Unfortunately, I saw a copy of the deluxified version at the Gen Con flea market for 50 bucks that looked absolutely mint. 
I should have just bought it. Yeah, that was stupid. I would have just bought it off of you and we could have probably sold our own copies with uh, the upgraded components or at least done something else. So the, I know they did a second Kickstarter, so I'm debating on picking up a deluxified copy from the second Kickstarter once those come out and people try to flip them. So sure. we shall see. Yokohama, it's fun. Awesome game. I got a chance to pull out a roll and write with my family that I've been playing for a while on the iPad and finally came out in actual cardboard and dice version here in the U.S. as of Gen Con. I'm talking about Encore, which is known the rest of the world by Nakmal, by Inca and Marcus Brand, published by Schmitzpiele Worldwide and Stronghold Games here locally. The iPad game of this is absolutely awesome. It's a roll and write where you're filling in colored blocks. You have to pick a number dice and a color dice. And you have to fill in exactly that many. So like you can't take a five and fill in a four shape. you got to fill in a five shape. If you can't fit it, you just take none. It then goes by scoring in columns. Whoever is the first to finish a column gets the big bonus and whoever else finishes it gets a much smaller bonus. And if you're the first to finish a specific color, you get a big bonus. Everybody else gets a small bonus. It keeps going till somebody finishes out two colors and then you score it all up. A good score is like 20 points. So (laughs) it's hard to do well in this game. Like I said, I've probably played the iPad version of that one 30 or 40 times, so it was fun to play this in person, and it went great. Jake, as somebody that likes rolling rights, this should be on your list to play. Well, it's interesting. These are also one of my favorite designers, and do you know want to know why, Mark? What did they design else? A little quiz time. I should know this one, because I've definitely heard of Inca and Marcus Brand, and I'm gapping it right now. Jake? I have played nine of their games. Oh, jeepers. Now I really feel stupid. Okay. They did the exit games. Oh, there you go. Yep. <laughs> right. And so there I love go. those games and they they did a wonderful job with that. So how similar is this game to other roll and rights of the just number, no theme, color variety? I'm thinking of uh, the doppel so clever and not at all regular so no. clever really nope. interesting nope. okay because nope. hearing you describe it very sound very similar like graphic design wise they definitely are kind of birds of a feather and they're both published by <laughs> they're, they're all published by stronghold and they have a very similar graphic design so if you put them on a shelf next to each other they i think they'd look like they were part of the same set but play wise they play out really differently and different parts of the brain and different math to do these things so no i, I absolutely think they're a, a distinct experience and you could have both of them and enjoy them both individually awesome well i love rolling right so you'll have to bring this one i'm excited to try it mark yeah plays out in uh i think it, it actually takes a little longer than you'd think but it's probably the same length as a game of uh, ganshan clever so you know you're in that 30 minutes ish range that's fine that's that's the, it's a long light filler but there's nothing wrong with that, you know? Yep. So that's Encore, Inca and Marcus Brandon, Stronghold Games. You know, I think we're going to call that one a uh, 1B. The next game that we got to play is a game that I've seen you play a whole bunch, and it was kindly gifted to us by our good friend, Craig Taylor of The Train Rush. And I've been adjacent to it many a times, but I haven't actually been able to play it. But that was rectified this past week. I'm, of course, speaking of Craftwagon by Matthias Kramer and Stronghold Games. Mark, why don't you describe kind of what you're doing in this game? Because you have done it way better than I could ever do it. Sure. It's actually a pretty short Euro game that plays out in about 90 minutes where you're playing through the early days of the automotive industry in Germany. And it's done with this interesting rondelle mechanism that's kind of Mancala style where you can move your worker forward as far as you want and take that action. But the only person that gets to take the action next is the person that's last in line. So you go through and take actions. Why do you do that? Because you're actually trying to build the best cars that you're putting up in the market. 
And those cars consist of a body of a certain strength, an engine of a certain strength, a pit crew that goes along with it, and a pricing on it. What you can do is you can control the market by saying, hey, I'm going to put a buyer out there that wants to buy the best body or the best engine or the biggest pit crew or the lowest price. And then when that's evaluated, they'll go through and buy a car. And if they buy your car, you get paid in victory points. As a side note, you also can test your cars by racing. And there's some bonuses by going around the racetrack for who completes a number of laps and whoever's in first place and so forth. It plays through three auction rounds. Each one of the auctions or the markets gets worth progressively more. And at the end, you count up uh, your victory points and little bonuses you earn along the way. And that's the end of the game. And, you know, I've been trying to get everybody to play this out because it's gone over really well every time we've played it. And it plays in like 90 minutes. And we had this perfect little kind of 90 minute, two hour spot before Brent and J-Mac showed up. So it seemed like the perfect game to push into that place and play it. So I'm really, really happy you got a chance to play. Right. What'd you think, Jake? Well, I think your assumption was right. Everybody really likes it, myself included. This game has a lot to offer. I think it's fun when a game gives you a lot of stuff to do, but they're kind of all connected in some way. So for example, there's this little racetrack and you can't let that racetrack really get ahead of you unless you want to completely ignore it. But the way to get good at the racetrack is by getting good at other aspects of the game. And the action Mancala liney thing, which is I think the same from Tokaido, is really interesting where the last person may be able to take a whole bunch of actions because people in front of them decided those weren't really worth it. But if you're the last person, you can take free actions. Why would you not take free actions? It's so fun. I think more games should have that. Yeah. The thing that I didn't like about it was the market aspect, but I don't think that's your fault being the game explainer. I think I didn't internalize the rules on that enough until the very end of the game. And had I known that from the get go, I think it really opened up the game. So I'm really looking forward to my second play of that, knowing right from the beginning how much the market matters would be really cool. I actually learned from that in terms of the teach. I think I skipped too quickly into the mechanism of the Mancala and I didn't hammer home the point of the game well enough. Like I really should have led the game out and said, "Okay, the goal of the game is that you're going to put cars up for sale. A car is made up of a body, an engine, a pit crew and a price. And everything you do throughout the course of the game is going to be to try to win those auctions that happen at the end of every round. Right. And here's how you do that. Right. You can put the buyers out and this will be who buys it. Right. And the right. parameters that makes sense. And I think I got it quicker than some of the people at the table. But still, it not that's such a fun part of the game, you know, seeing how much oh, they yeah. can change and all that stuff. And I think um, it just kind of fell a little flat for the first couple of rounds. And the first couple of rounds, I think, dragged on a little bit because of it. But by the third round, everybody had got it and the market got properly vicious as it actually should. Right. And no, it's it's a wonderful game for that aspect. So it becomes the question of, do you just start putting some cars out earlier and hoping that you can get buyers that'll like that cars later? Or do you make sure to stay back a while and maybe there won't be as many car slots available so you can actually put them up to sell? That kind of push and pull of those two different mechanisms there is really interesting. I like this game a lot. It definitely was within our wheelhouse of great Euro games of that length. It, it's It's wonderful. If only more people knew about it. Yeah, this is a game that I, you know, I don't remember hearing anything about it when it came out. And now that I've played it, I look back and I go, why isn't this game more popular? It's great. Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, we usually kind of don't follow Stronghold games that closely anyways. So maybe that was part of the reason with this. They usually don't have a lot of games that we truly love. But this is a beautiful game. I don't know why it's not more played by more people. It's awesome. 
Yeah, for sure. The production quality is typical Stronghold. Like if you've played Terraforming Mars, you will know what to expect out of Craft Wagon. It's not the thickest cardboard on the planet. But here's the beauty of this whole thing. This game is 25 bucks all day long on Amazon. And I promise you, that's your best 25 bucks in gaming that you're going to find. That or Castles of Burgundy, if it's still 20 bucks. I haven't bought a copy in a while. But those games, just like those great cheap games. Why are games always 60 bucks now? You know, get some $25 big box games is awesome. So if you're limited on your budget, gaming budget, and want something that packs a heck of a punch for 25 bucks, Castles of Burgundy or Craft Wagon, you'd be hard-pressed to go wrong with either one of those. Let's play it again sometime soon when we all will still know the mechanisms and can really dive into the market from the get-go. It's a fun game. I'm, I'm liking Craft Wagon a lot. That's Craft Wagon by Matthias Kramer and Stronghold Games. Speaking of games that are coming out of nowhere that haven't been played forever... I found myself at home with my family quite a bit this weekend. We were going to maybe game on Sunday and it just didn't happen. So I ended up gaming with my kids on Saturday and we were trying to figure out what to play. And out of nowhere, I decided to pull out Gloomhaven because I had started this a year ago, played through like two adventures with a group of friends, J-Mac and JJ and Phil and J-Mac and myself. And it's, man, it's hard to get a group of friends together at this point in our lives to do a campaign. So it just sort of sat. I played some one-off campaigns at some cons that I went to, but I really wanted to actually play this giant box that I bought two years ago and have barely scratched the surface of. So I decided to teach my kids how to play this. And man, I know a lot's been written and said about Gloomhaven, but that card action selection mechanism is so smart. It's so genius and it plays out so thematically and it's so tight where every time I play this one, you're always sort of sliding into the finish line thinking, boy, I hope we can make this one. This is going to be tight. And, you know, that's exactly how this time went down through. Uh, We played the opening one, Black Barrow, where we used our last couple of cards to finish looting the area around us. And now we're on to the next one. And I think what was cool about this, and I wouldn't have guessed this, but as we were sitting around the dinner table afterwards, reliving our experience, my wife, who I wouldn't think this would be her theme, but she loves cooperative games, said, man, I think I want to play this one. Is there, can you fit a fourth in there? (laughs) Why, yes, we can fit a fourth in there. So my wife is going to join our little family campaign of Gloomhaven, and I, I couldn't be more excited about that. So I'm really interested to hear that you haven't had this idea before to play a campaign game with your family because your family is super smart at games and Gloomhaven's hefty, but I mean, heck, your family figures out anything. Yeah. You know, so that shouldn't be an issue because it seems like with campaign games in our group, who is kind of a revolving, not a revolving door, but people are in some weeks and they're out the next weeks. It's not the same fixed group of people playing the same game. You can't really play campaign games, you know, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, there's there's worse problems to have. So either you need to be very open with the fact of the group changing a lot if you're trying to play a campaign game, or you should try to play a campaign game with people that you play games with all the time so you can still get a variety with them and play something else, but also be able to circle back to a game you all know. And your family's the perfect fit for that. I'm so happy you're playing it. That's great. Well, and we are doing a campaign game and we're that we're doing near and far together. Oh, gotcha. You know, we've worked through a bunch of that. We've also played through the Harry Potter card game and had a great time doing that. We attempted to do Pandemic, but my 11-year-old daughter is a little on the impressionable side, and she got a little freaked out by, you know, big diseases taking over the world. And so, therefore, we're still on February in Pandemic Season 1 and never made it any farther. Right. So, in- interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy you're going down the campaign game trail. This is awesome. Yeah. And I also was holding on a little bit too long, hoping that my original group would keep playing this one. And 
eh, guys, we'll have a chance to do more. Don't uh, don't lose the faith. But I, I realized that if I actually wanted to get through it, I needed to do it with my family. Yeah, because when the only successful time I've had playing a campaign game was Pandemic Season 1, Pandemic Legacy Season 1. And the only way we did that correctly is Tyler and I decided that we're going to be the only two people that need to be there for every single session or else we just weren't going to get it done. So Tyler and I split the cost of the game and then we just would play with whoever would play with us. And we got through it, I think, in like a couple of months. It was pretty fast. So, yep. So Gloomhaven, you know, it's the number one game on Board Game Geek and not for no reason. Absolutely. So I didn't get to play any Gloomhaven, but I did get to try a game that we talked about last week. So I won't go into too much detail with it, but I got to play Noctiluca by Shem Phillips of the of the of the place thing um, series, which is our, our self-coined term. And it's published by Z-Man Games. So what you're doing in Noctiluca is you're putting out a whole bunch of dice that are a bunch of different colors. And on your turn, you're going to place a pawn in one of the outside spaces on this and it's a hex board so if you play on the outside you kind of have two different paths that you get to select all the dice from and you call a number so for example i could call five and place it in some corner and then i down either one of those paths i have to choose one i get to take all of the five showing number dice on that path it makes a lot more sense if you look at the board all those outside areas are little spots first, let's do what I think about the game. It was a fun little game. It definitely got a little too crunchy, which I think is your main complaint about it down the line. I wouldn't say crunchy. I'd say AP prone. That's not quite the same thing. That's fair. hundred percent. And I meant AP prone by saying crunchy. I, I co-opted a term that I know means something else to something that it doesn't. Don't know why I do that. It very much could get into that. Like I have certain people in our game group that I love to play games with that I would definitely not bring this one to because it's just going to be a mathematical thing. You could literally solve it by looking around and figure out what you need and do an actual like mathematical run on what spot is the very best for you. And that just that game can't exist for certain people like that. So but it was fun. I thought it was a great kind of late night, no big deal play kind of thing. The one thing I didn't like about it is I got completely hate drafted out of the end of the game. I think I did the math and my delta was like 11 or 14 points because Kirk took the one spot that he could take and then blocked the things that I needed. So I couldn't get them any other way. And that was kind of a bummer, but he ended up winning. So I guess it worked out best for him, but it was, it was fun. The main thing that I want to talk about from last week's conversation is you brought this up as an abstract. And I think this would be a good kind of launching point to have a quick little discussion on what we think an abstract is, because I don't know if I'd call this one an abstract. Yeah, and I would absolutely call it an abstract. So it's good point counterpoint here. Now we arm wrestle to decide who's right, right? <laughs> I know. We had the lead in discussion on this one trying to figure out, is this an abstract or isn't it? So the reason we bring this up is that there was a discussion that took place after an earlier episode about really what is an abstract, because we had called a game like Azul or Sagrada an abstract by a fan of the show that really is into very abstract games like Go. So it was a nice little academic discussion about, you know, what's the nature of an abstract? Is it something that's purely themeless, purely deterministic? Is it something that um, is very strategy oriented or, you know, where's that line fall? And we decided we'd take a couple of minutes and just chat among us about what an abstract means. Jake, what do you what do you feel an abstract is? So before we do us, we first circled to BGG because they have information, right? And that helped no one. So they have a definition <laughs> that has may or may not include five parameters. But the well, and that's my favorite part. It says are often, but not always. So right then always. and there, it's like, well, <laughs> OK, there you go. But in paragraph form, kind of what happens here is their definition is 
an abstract strategy game is a strategy game that minimizes luck and does not rely on a theme. Almost all abstract strategy games will conform to the strictest definition of a game board, card, or tile game to which there is no hidden information, no non-deterministic elements such as shuffled cards or dice rolls, and usually two players or teams taking a finite number of alternating turns. So that's their paragraphical definition. Their actual definition with the different parameters is as follows. When you actually pull up Noctiluca, it's listed under the abstract strategy category, and their definition of abstract strategy is they are often, but not always, themeless, built on straightforward design and mechanics, perfect information games, uh, promoting one player overtaking their opponents, or little or no elements of luck, chance, or random occurrence. Often, but not always. And if you look at the games that are in that pile, the situation gets much muddier. They have 842 pages of abstract strategy games that include games like Noctiluca and Azul and Go and Chess and Reef and Sagrada. And so I think we made this more challenging than less challenging. Yeah. And so at least personally, why don't I start off with my kind of definition? It's one of those things where, at least to me, I kind of know an abstract game when I see it. And to me, it feels weird linking like the GIPF series of games, G-I-P-F for listeners, series of games. Which I think everybody would agree is an abstract. A hundred percent. That's one of those ones to find. It feels weird linking that with a game like Sagrada, for example, or Noctiluca. I could more see that lining up with something like Azul, but then at the same token, I think Azul is more similar to Noctiluca and Sagrada and those styles of games than, for example, Go or Gipf or Chess. It's almost like there should be a kind of different delineation between there. Then you go to a game like Santorini, and that gets even more confusing. Which side is that? It's kind of cutesy and artsy and tile placement-y. I, I, I don't know. What's kind of your take on this, Mark? You know, I think there's various levels there. It's a bit like saying vegan and vegetarian, where they're both Kind of like we don't eat meat, but there's different levels of not eating meat. And I think we can look at this this way, whereas a game like Go and Chess and so forth, those are pure abstract, pure strategy games. Whereas there are some that have a little more, a little broader definition on what that means. Like they're taking advantage of that, but not always clause in the abstract strategy. Like they kind of have some theme. Or like in the case of Noctiluca, it's not luck based once you have the board set up because there's a random board set up. But then once the board is set up, everybody's playing with perfect information. So is that random or isn't it? I don't right. know. So for me, I think there's various levels of that, that I think that that sort of pure strategy, pure abstract is almost a different category that could be called out as a separate thing than games that really don't have much theme and really are puzzle games like Noctiluca and Azul. I think what we should do is, and I think moving forward, we should use the term puzzly abstract to describe these games. I think that's a great category that describes these kind of games. I don't think we're ever going to disagree on that. And we'll keep abstracts to more like two player slash team confrontational board checks, checkers, go, gip, gip, that kind of stuff. Because that feels to be a good thing because I can't, we can't give up the term abstract to only those styles of games. Because no. there, you need to use that term. I mean, it's it's very applicable in games, I believe, like Azul and stuff. And I apologize. We're, me and you are not into the whole abstract world. I've tried to get into the Gip series and I sold most of them because I just didn't have somebody to play with. So, you know. The Mogul Scale actually sort of categorizes this. These would be games that would be like one ease. And you'll notice we've reviewed very few of those because neither one of us are into those where they're very high strategy, very low rules. 
games like uh, Zertz and the GIF series are exactly that. I can explain the rules to you in 30 seconds and it's super brain hurts to play it. Yeah, absolutely. So I apologize, abstract community. Maybe we're wrong here, but that's kind of what we thought on this. And that is our long conversation on Noctiluca and abstract games. We're going to start saying the term puzzly abstract all the time now, huh? There we go. It's puzzly abstract. There it is. We just coined a new term. So people on Board Game Geek, get going. Create that category for us so we can fix this. Thanks, BGG. Easy. We apologize for anybody that has whiplash right now. After all of these super light games we've just got done talking about, after all the train games we talked about last episode, sorry, not sorry. And we're going to kind of keep going down that rabbit hole and give everybody a breather after the last episode, because we've talked about a lot of card games in this one. And that's not by accident. Jake and I have an intense love for small box card games, and we wanted to take some time and discuss some of our favorites. So with that kickoff to our main topic, Jake, why don't you tell me about one of your favorite small box card games? I would love to, Mark. So first, let's start here. I think we have to do some obvious um, exceptions and exclusions because mm-hmm. we've talked about them so much. Like, I'm pretty sure both the top card games that we'd include would be Teach You and Arboretum. But I think we've talked about that in more podcast episodes than we haven't, both of those combined. So let's just <laughs> drop that off. For sure. Put those as a blanket over the top. We love Teach You and Arboretum, and we're not going to talk about them today. Cool. They, they, they would win all of our lineups. And I also wait a minute. We just talked about them. Oh, God, we did it. I also think that we should avoid the two player head to head style of games like Magic, Keyforge, yep. Key Netrunner. I those even left out Codex. Yeah, Codex. Those kind of yeah. it's just it's they're almost a different style. It's kind of the same thing where, yeah, they're a card game, but they're a two player head to head card game. That feels a little different. They're their own thing. Absolutely. So I think we should first also define what a card game is versus a game that has cards. A good example of this would be <laughs> we're railway. Just, we're just banging on definitions today, aren't we? We're we're, we're the pedantic podcast. <laughs> I know. I know. Might as well do it, right? That should be the new name. A game like Railways of North America. That game only has cards, but it doesn't feel like a card game. You're using cards to represent bits of information, but you're not really playing cards if that makes sense. And I would say the same thing about games like Flow of History, where, yes, the achievements that you have are cards, but you don't really have a card, a hand of cards that you're playing out because you're really trying to bid on these achievements and get them out there. Right. And then obviously we're not going to include like flip and rights because you don't even touch the cards. It's just a random input generator. (laughs) So and furthermore, we're going to leave off games where the cards make the board that you play on. This would be games like Mintworks. It's really a worker placement game and the cards happen to make a board. So, yes, there are cards, but it's not a card game. Right. That's because they didn't want to make a board. They just wanted to make it out of cards. They just wanted to be like that. Correct. With that and all of our caveats, let me start with one of my favorite card games. I will do them in no specific order, but this one is one of the only ones I do not own. I'm, of course, speaking of one of my favorite card games, which is Glory to Rome, designed by Ed Carter and Carl Chuddick, who designed it more depends on who you ask. And it's published by (laughs) uh, Cambridge Game Studio or PNP. Or me. Or Mark. There it is. So so what you're doing in Glory to Rome is you are different senators rebuilding Rome after some downfall or something. But functionally, what you're doing is there's all of these different cards that have different powers, and you can use them one of three different ways, and they chain together in these crazy combos and everybody's making a whole bunch of points and doing a whole bunch of stupid things towards the end and oh it's wonderful i love this game so much mark yeah it's super fun we got a chance to actually pull that out and play it when we were at mid sumcon the first night we arrived because our great hosts ira and eric had never played it before maybe maybe eric somebody had but anyway we pulled it out 
and played it and just, you know, mini laughs. It went off exactly as it should, where it's a race to get the stupidest combos you can and then just win in a big glorious splash. Yeah, and it's it's wonderful. It it feels really good because you have to follow other people's turns and you have to know what cards you're going to have and how to manage the economy on that. And it's a really special card game. If you haven't tried it, try to figure out if you could play somebody else's copy or see if you can print and play a copy or something along those lines. It's it's certainly a wonderful game. Glory to Rome. One of the most fun parts about that isn't that you get to follow other people's actions. It's that you might get to follow it 12 times. Yeah, or 15 I'm going to take 15 builder actions right now, and I'm going to take all of the cards from the center. Thank you very much. Hope you don't mind. Yeah, it's been a while. I actually think I might need a re-rules refresher if we play this game again, Mark. So that's that's not Ooh. good. I don't ever want to be in that status with this game. So let's play it again sometime. I love Glory to Rome. Absolutely. My rules teacher is laser focused on this one. Absolutely. Why don't you start with one of your favorite top three card games there, Mark? I'm going to talk about one that's uh, a little off the beaten track right now, and I have played this game a ton more not in physical fashion than in physical fashion, which sounds a little weird. I'm talking about Anirim by Z-Man Games, designed by Shadi Torbay. Anirim is actually a solitaire game. It's a solitaire game where you're trying to get eight doors out and complete them by either matching up your keys that are that you have in your hand or by completing three different symbols in a row up on a tableau where you can't repeat any symbols. But if the spooks come out, then you either have to discard your hand or you have to pull a certain number of cards off your deck. If you run out of cards, you lose. It's a really fun game to play and available cheaply. There's been multiple follow-ons to this game, kind of of the same design language and similar theme. But Oniram's really the classic and it's hard to beat this as a solitaire game. But I will tell you, I would actually not recommend playing the card game. I'd recommend getting and playing the, the iPad or iPhone version of it because you'll be shuffling more than you want to in the actual version. Because anytime any of the uh, the ghosts come out, you actually have to reshuffle the deck. So oh, in any game of Oniram, you're probably going to reshuffle that deck like 20 times. And that's a bit much. It's a fat deck. So get yourself the iPhone or iPad version of Oniram and go nuts because it's a great game. Do you own the physical copy of this? I do. You want to borrow it? I would love to. I love borrowing solo games. I will happily trade you a copy of Deep Space D6 again for a little opportunity to try out some Oniram. And you don't need to do that because I own Deep Space D6. Oh, you did? You joined the cool club? Awesome. I, we should I both am play cool. it solo near each other. <laughs> That's pretty much like every other Roland right? right? Absolutely. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll absolutely bring that so you can borrow it. It's a great game. Awesome. Cool. So my number two favorite card game is a game that is 100% my fault for you not playing yet. And we've talked about it in a whole bunch of episodes, but it'd be stupid to not bring it up here. Um, I'm speaking of Race for the Galaxy by Thomas Lehman and Rio Grande. <laughs> oh, I'm laughing because that's the sound of Jake owing me five bucks. I know I owe you five bucks. I literally because I remember listening to that podcast and I was like, I never did that. I will send you five dollars. And I did literally right now. I'm going to send it to you. <laughs> Right now, I bought the iPhone version of this one and I played it on my iPad en route to Gen Con. So I have played Race for the Galaxy. Oh, my God, Mark. I'm still paying you because I'm going to do this bit, even if it's really annoying. How much was it? Five bucks? <laughs> it might have been three ninety nine. You know what? We'll add a little interest on there. <laughs> uh, for those of you that didn't hear the other one, we talked about this last time and I said, man, I've never played this. And Jake went, Mark, I'm going to send you five bucks right now and you go online and buy that app so you can play it 
And I held up my end of the bargain. I sucked. It was just one of those things. I just never thought of it. I would happily give you the five bucks. I have so much money sitting in Venmo. I never take it out of there. I'm silly. Oh, look at that. There it is. Jacob it paid you through. $5. Race it's for the, the galaxy. Bit. We are committing to it. I'm a man <laughs> of my word. So let's describe the background of the game. So functionally, what you are doing is you are building a tableau of card powers. These cards are different developments or planets, and you are selecting an action at the start of each one of your turns, and everybody gets to do that action. But you, because you selected it, get to do a special little bonus part of it. Your action's a little stronger, but everybody gets to do it. And so what's also cool about this game is on top of these cards being different projects to be able to build different planets and different developments, they are also your currency. So to pay for cards, you must spend cards. And every card is worth a certain number of victory points. It's a race to either deplete the victory point pool, which is the one thing in this game that's not cards, or B, to be the first person to build 12, and then you add up the points at the end of the game. So what did you think, Mark? I can't believe you actually played and you played online. <laughs> so I, I I thought it was great. Yes. You know, this, this, this game is super popular and super well rated. So I knew that there was no chance that I wasn't really going to like this. I think I got warned off of it early in my gaming career. I have some friends that didn't really like it very much. And so before I had ever played it, I'd sort of been warned off. it. it's like, oh, man, that game's a mess. Really didn't like it. R- uh, roll for the galaxy is a better game anyway. So just stick to roll. Don't bother with race. So. I just never went back and played it. I thought the using the cards as currency was super cool. And I that was the point I was actually going to bring up about it, because that's one thing that it's really markedly different than Roll for the Galaxy, because Roll for the Galaxy, you get money and you spend the money, whereas in this one, you got to spend your hand of cards. So do I use the cards actually as the development or the world or do I just use it to pay for a different one? So you really have to pick your strategy and commit to that because you're not going to get to keep all the cards in your hand and maybe ever play them out. Gosh, I'm so happy you played. I'm just sitting over here smiling. So this is my fault, and I'm going to chastise myself here. I bought two of the expansions, and I just can't be bothered to read the rules to them and whether or not they should actually be included as modules. And it was just complete completism for completism's sake. And I just don't know what to do with it. So I need to go through, hmm. take out the expansions that I don't know how to play, and only include the ones I do know how to play, and just play this game because it's so fun. And it's great in person, too, because you can maybe read the board state a little better when you're actually playing against other people. But oh, it's such a good card game. It's so fun. Yeah. And I was just playing against the AI, but I can certainly see where, you know, if you're playing against somebody else and seeing what they're trying to do and the big tension in all of those games are what actions are we actually going to do? You know, are mm-hmm. we going to do the discover action? Are we going to do the uh, production action? You know, that's uh, that, that's half the fun. And when you're not playing with an actual person, eh, that one isn't quite as exciting. So what difficulty did you play against on the app? Hmm. You know, I probably played it on just whatever the regular normal is. That's typically what I do. And um, I lost next time. Switch to hard. And I just want to he- I, I want to hear what you say. <laughs> just play against hard, though. Just it's ridiculous. It's oh, is it a wrecking ball? I've played this game. I've mentioned it on the podcast a bunch of times, but I have played this game probably hundreds of times on the app, maybe thousands if we want to be truthful here. And maybe my success rate is every other I'll beat the very hard, maybe every one out of every three. They're just so Hmm. good. I don't know why they're so good, but it's fun. It's fun that they're that good. Cool. Yeah. No, we, uh, we need to get that out and play it together sometime because now that I actually know how to play, might still need a refresh because, you know, you got a you got a babysitter keeping you going on the on the online version. Mm-hmm. You can't break the rules even if you want to kind of thing. Right, 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 right. So 
I don't know that I could actually sit down and play it right straight up without a little bit of refresher, but certainly interested in it. Well, that's Race for the Galaxy. Let's play it in person. I'm so happy you played the app, Mark. That's awesome. What's your <laughs> what's what's your number? Your number two there, Mark. You talked about Carl Chuddick and you know, you can't talk about Carl Chuddick without talking about more Carl Chuddick. So I'm going to talk about more Carl Chuddick. And the Carl Chuddick game I'm going to bring out is the game that has taken a lot of my gaming friends by storm, almost in spite of itself. Like this is a game that I really thought all my friends would hate because it's stupidly swingy, yet they all love it. I'm talking about Innovation, which is a mm, de-themed glory to Rome almost, but yet the two really don't play anything like each other other than the fact that They have crazy swingy combos and, you know, you can think you're winning and then pretty soon you're way behind and then all of a sudden you're back in front again. Um, The idea behind innovation is that there's 12 ages and anytime you draw cards, you draw from the particular age that you're in. Every single card in the entire game is unique, that they have different symbols that they give you power for or whatever, and they have different abilities and you progressively get stronger and stronger cards as you move up the era. And then you're trying to sack away victory points like you're trying to like the first era requires five points and then the second one, 10 and so forth. And as you put those things away, eventually you win if you get uh, what is it? Five different uh, innovations or whatever or, or milestones, I think they call them. Yeah, milestones. And what happens is, is that as you play these cards, some of them are just powers that you have. Other are, are hostile powers that you can make other people do. So it's like the the legionary action in Glory to Rome where you can force people to give you cards. In this case, you can force people to do other things like you can force people to discard actually uh, milestones that they have. You can make them throw cards away out of their hands. You can make them burn cards out of their tableau. And the way that they defend that is by the symbols on their cards. So let's say I'm playing a card that has light bulbs on it. That's like a technology card. And if they have equal to or more than me in that area, they're defended against that ability and they don't have to do it. But if they have less, <laughs> bend over, my friend. Interesting. This is a game I've probably played about 10 times and I keep it permanently inside of my game case because I love it so much. And I taught this on a whim to JJ, who I honestly thought would hate this, but he and his wife play it all the time and they've taught it to Phil and it's kind of bloomed outwards in my group. So that's sort of become the, hey, we just got a few minutes. Let's just beat each other up in, in innovation for a few minutes. Yeah, I, I remember really liking this one. I've only played it once, which is a bummer because it's neat. And I really like the whole splay thing. That's fun. And I've came and I've seen you play it with other people. You taught my cousin how to play it. He ended up buying a copy. And it's fun to see that whole symbol splay thing. It's probably one of the coolest mechanisms in that game. And I'd like to play it again. Bring it out more. And when Jake says splay, what happens is you stack up the light colored cards in your tableau and the card goes on top and it replaces the card and the symbols below there. But what happens is that the game goes on and gets more powerful. It allows you to take your pile and splay it up left, right or uh, up left or right, I think. And then that actually reveals more symbols. I'm sure you could splay it down, but it won't help you. I don't think there's any symbols on the top part of the card. No, and that reveals more symbols, giving you more power in that area. And that so instead of having like the three that are on the card, now suddenly you're like, well, I've got 20 light bulbs. How about you? Yeah, right. Like, (laughs) try again. And it's interesting because maybe all the cards that you're focusing for, you're going to try to splay left or whatever, splay right. And so you're going to make sure that all those symbols are there. It's a fun game. I remember, I don't even think we played a full game when we played. It's really swingy. I remember that. But it just seems like it's that roll and write thing. This is, I think we're going to have this, the same cover up at the end of this because we got so into roll and rights last year. Oh yeah. We play them a lot and those kind of just fill this 30 to an hour minute game category. And it's kind of interesting kind of 
penduliming back into the more kind of card games that I think we're doing now. As a side note, I think we got an upcoming episode that we should do that it called Rollin' Rights that have stood the test of time, because let me tell you, it's not all of them. Oh, easily. It's easily not all of them. That's Innovation by Carl Chuddick, published by Asmati Games. Not Asmodee, Asmati. Side note here, could you imagine Innovation published by Asmodee? Like this giant one foot by one foot by 18 inch box with like a miniature for every single card in this huge table. Well, it's funny that you make <laughs> Fantasy Flight or, or, or the perception for you is Fantasy Flight comes with a whole bunch of miniatures because I think that's partially true, but only for the like dungeon crawl line. This game would just have so many tokens and they're going to be really small and they're going to be like trackers. You know, there's going to be a bunch of like health tokens. That's what Fantasy Flight is to me. A bunch of small little tokens that are annoying. Star Wars Rebellion. Yeah, <clears> True. <throat> Star Wars Rebellion, yes. <laughs> so is, um, but also they also made like, um, well, really all the Star Wars games. They also shoved minis into Civilization: A New Dawn, which they really didn't need to. Yeah, so not saying it's bad, just saying that's kind of their style. You know, you're right. You're right. It would, it would, it would have a whole bunch. How could you make each card into a mini? Fantasy Flight, get on it. <laughs> yep. There you go. All right. Let's finish her up. I'll do my number three, which is conveniently also a Fantasy Flight game, which is a game that I have not played this year, which is a shame. I'm speaking of Blood Bowl Team Manager by Jason Little and published by Fantasy Flight Games. About every fall, I will circle back to this game because it's football season, which is something I absolutely (laughs) love. And for our international listeners, I'm describing American football, the only kind of football that matters. And what you do in Blood Bowl Team Manager is it's a fantasy football game. And what I mean by fantasy football is there's orcs and elves and crap playing football. But what the game actually does mechanism wise is you line up on the sides of these different matchup cards that have different bonuses depending on if you're the strongest person towards the end. And every time you lay a card, you will functionally trigger its abilities and do something to the other people that are at that matchup. And it scales really well. It's head-to-head, but it's never head-to-head against the same people. So functionally, if you're playing a table against three people, maybe I'm fighting Mark here and Mark's fighting Kirk over there, and then I'm fighting Kirk over here. So you, you're not always just like always just railing into one person. It's, it's, it's more mister, mixed around like that. But I love this game. It's one of the first games that I started on when I was first into this hobby, and I loved it so much I picked up a second in-shrink copy to just leave at my parents' house for down the line because this game is sadly out of print, and I just I just love it so much. I, I don't necessarily stand by its merits as a game, but I find it very fun and very swingy and a, a, a good use of an hour to an hour and a half. You've played this game once, Mark, and I don't think you share my feelings towards it. I actually think I've played it twice. You have. I was just thinking about that, and... I think I gave it a thumb sideways at the time, but, uh, you know, like you said, it has been about a year and I'm down for playing this again. Yeah, it's it's fun for what it is. I mean, it's silly. It gets really swingy and you build stuff, but it's it's fun, right? And I also think maybe my beef with the game isn't has nothing to do with the game. It's that you're really good at it because you've played it a thousand times. So it's kind of pointless to play you. See, you say that, but this game is chaos enough where you can actually beat me. This is something you've been saying to me a lot in a lot of different games. And I'm interested because I think you have this perception that I'm good at games. And I think if we look at my BG stats, I am not good at games. Even the ones that I know. (laughs) Like, for example, we have talking offline a lot about this game called 1846, which we won't bore the listeners with. And you think I'm good at it. I played it three times with two or three times recently, two times with people that did not know the rules very well. And I lost both times. And so I don't know if I'm as good as you think I am, but I think you always have a chance. I'm pretty garbage at games. 
I do track our stats and I know who has the better win record and it ain't me. It's not. Eh. I have been playing a lot of my own <laughs> games recently, so maybe that's it. And a bunch of those small games. I am sure. very good at small box games. But uh, no, I will agree with you that this is um, if you're taking this game serious enough where you're playing it very strategically and try to win, you're maybe missing the point of the entire game. Right. And you're probably overstating what the game actually is. And so coming into football season, let's do us a little Blood Bowl team manager. Oh, it's so fun. And it's it's great. Listen to our previous episodes. I can't remember which episode it is, but it was an early one. Listen to all our episodes. It was early because it's one of my favorite games. And I will wax poetic about this game forever. If anyone ever requests this game, I will happily play it. My box is falling apart. That's how well loved it is. I can testify it's well loved. (laughs) Blood Bowl Team Manager by Jason Little and Fantasy Flight Games. What's your last one, Mark? Bring us home. It would not be a trip through card games without talking about a trick taking game. And by the way, before we uh, (laughs) raise the hackles of any pedantic people, it's our turn to not be pedantic this time around. Whether it's a trick taking game or a ladder game, I don't care. We're kind of a big tent. (laughs) We're big tent on our definition of trick taking games. It's a game where you win. You play cards and you win stuff. So therefore, it's a trick taking game. Fine. Come at me. And I'm I'm talking about Hisashi Hayashi's masterpiece Trick of the Rails, which is 18xx in a trick taking game in a card game. And Jake, I know this is one of your favorite games also. And we need to play this a lot more than we do because we never play this game. And I love it. I know. God, we suck. It's stupid roll and rights. They took it from us because we played this game a lot last year. I think it was on my yeah. 10 by 10 last year. So the idea is that you're almost playing out the mindset of an 18xx games where you go back and forth between stock rounds and operating rounds. But depending on who wins the trick that turn gets to decide whether they get shares of stock in a particular company or whether they build track to a particular company. And at the end of the game, if you have the most shares in the company where that has built the longest track and pays out the best, minus the cost of the locomotive that they have to buy for it, uh, you win the game across all of the different companies that run. And it really does manage to put that theme forward. Yet at the same time, it's really a card game and a trick taking game. And I've played this a number of times with my family and they like it quite a bit as well. It's awesome. The only downside is I think people think this game is way more complicated than it is. Yeah, it's really easy. I, if you're a moderate Euro player, you can figure this out at any point in time. It helps if you know 18xx. The only real reason it helps is you count up a certain number valued cities depending on the, the train for that region. And they have to be adjacent cards, but that's all it is from carryover from 18xx. Yeah, and I had taught this to my family long before I played 18 Lilliput or 18CZ with any of them. And They figured out literally instantly. They just explained it to them and they even were getting the strategy on like what to win and increase the shares of stock and stuff like that. It went over great. Yeah, no, this game is wonderful. We both have a copy. We played the absolute crap out of it last year, which wasn't enough for me. I would happily play it more. And then dang, Roland writes, they came in. They came in and (laughs) took all of these games from us. Oh, I know the game suckers. They'll they'll get their day back in the closet. I'm sure they will. That was my number three choice for uh, great little card games that uh, really should come out of the closet and get played more often that are some of our favorites. And Jake, I think that's all I got to say this evening. How about you? Me too. After our super long episode last week, I think we uh, owe the listeners a shorter episode this week and one with probably less trains. And we failed miserably. It's just as long as last week, but less trains. I can promise you that. Less trains. We achieved that. All right. Well, good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. And good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild 
guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.